Once a month, on a Friday morning, at a specific moment, this very important number comes out. In fact, it happened just today. Just a few moments away from the release of the Consumer Sentiment Report. The Consumer Sentiment Index is a measure of how ordinary Americans are feeling about the economy. And everyone in the financial world wants to know what this number is going to be. So, on this one Friday a month, traders and financial analysts sit watching their computers, their TV screens, waiting for the results. Rick, can you hear me? 82.7. 82.7 is the number. And remember now, this is a June preliminary. Why is that important? Because our last look was the... CNBC reports it at 9.55 a.m. On the dot. This is Simone Foxman. She's a reporter at Quartz. Any ordinary person who has a TV or an internet right. connection can know at 9.55 a.m. and zero seconds. Or like as long as it takes for someone to pronounce <laughs> that number, yeah. yes. <laughs> it turns out for a very select group of traders, when this number comes out, it is already old news. Because they got the number in advance. Two seconds in advance. Thomson Reuters, which distributes this number, releases it early to computer traders who pay, early by two seconds. Simone published a story about this at Quartz this week after she got a hold of a legal contract that spells out the details. Simone read us a bit of that contract. It says, Thomson Reuters will send out the data to subscribers of its ultra-low latency distribution platform for purposes of algorithmic trading at approximately 954.58, plus or minus 500 milliseconds. I love the plus or minus 500 milliseconds. So 954.58 plus or minus 500 milliseconds is saying, is promising in a legal contract, we will get you this number somewhere between 954 and 57 seconds and a half and 954 and 58 seconds and a half. Yes, exactly. So two seconds. Let me just demonstrate that. That means flash traders get it now. Everyone else gets it. Is that right? (laughs) That's what you're paying for. That's what you're paying for. According to the Wall Street Journal, people who trade with ultra-fast computer algorithms are paying $5,000 a month to get this number early. Yeah, two seconds early, right? I mean, two seconds. Like, if you sent me the number by email two seconds early, it would take me a second to notice that the email had arrived, and then I'd click on it, and then I'd start reading. And then Two seconds are up. Two seconds are already up, right? And this is why these people paying $5,000 a month are not getting this number via email. In fact, they as people aren't really even getting it at all. What's happening is Thomson Reuters has a computer that's sending this number directly to the computers at the high-speed trading firms. Those computers instantly decide, based on the number, whether to do nothing or to place a bet that stock prices will go up or a different bet that stock prices will go down. Then the computers go out to the market and make whatever trade they're going to make. And all of that, everything I just said, happens in less than two seconds. It happens before the rest of the world gets this number. It's funny to think about paying extra to get this number two seconds early because if your business is making these high-speed computer trades and this is offered to you, pay us extra and you can get the information two seconds in advance, honestly, you really don't have a choice. You have to pay extra to get it early because if you don't, you're going to be two seconds behind the competition. Not not forking over the money would mean you're late and high-frequency traders make money by trading like this. So it's an arms race. It's an arms race. Yeah, of course. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today on the show, we are replaying one of our favorites. It's the crazy story of the rise of high-speed computerized trading. It's told by one man who is at the center of it. And we ask him, what does he think about this world he helped create? 
man you're going to meet, his name is Thomas Petterfee, and I, I read about him in this book that came out recently, Automate This, written by Christopher Steiner. And it's one of those books you think you're just going to skim, but then you just keep reading and reading and reading. And, and Petterfee's story was so amazing that I went to talk to him. And I, I asked him to start at the beginning, and he started right at the beginning. Petterfee was born in the middle of World War II. He grew up in a building that was partly bombed out, and his first real experience with trading happened when he was around 12 years old. A friend of his went across the border to Austria and brought back something truly precious. Juicy fruit gum. These were beautiful yellow juicy fruit <laughs> gum sticks. And so he sold them to me for two forints, which was the Hungarian currency, per stick. Petterfee takes the gum, he cuts each stick into five small pieces, and he sells the pieces to his friends in school for one forint each making a little profit for himself. Now, Hungary was communist at the time, and this did not go over well at school. And soon enough, the teachers noticed in the school that all the kids were sitting around chewing gum. And, of course, eventually the the principal found out about this and uh, called me down into his office, and he said, Well, where is your communist conscience? And I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> he didn't like the profiteering. He didn't like the, the gum itself. He didn't like anything. <laughs> was that your first time buying low and selling high? That, that is correct. Petterfee eventually makes it out of Hungary. He finds a way to get to the United States. He speaks almost no English. This is 1965. He lives here in New York in a Hungarian neighborhood on the east side. And he gets a job as a draftsman at an engineering firm which is where he meets his first computer. It's basically a primitive calculator, but for Petterfee, this is love at first sight. He stays up all night programming it. And that finally puts Petterfee at the place where he will shape history, the financial markets. He begins working for a trading firm that's interested in using computers. And David, this is really a pivotal moment in the in the history of the market. You know, it's the early 1970s. Computers are no longer the size of a whole room. They're cheap enough that an ordinary company can buy one. And you have people on Wall Street starting to say, hey, maybe a computer can help me figure out how to make money in the markets. And, and Petterfee focuses on, on using the computer to try and make money in the options market. So options are what we call derivatives. When you buy an option on, say, a stock, you don't buy the actual stock. What you're buying is a guarantee that you can buy that stock at a certain price at a specific date in the future. It's like, whoa, what should that thing cost, right? It's like some weird insurance policy. It's going to depend on the stock price now, on how far off that future date is, on how much the price of the stock moves around. So figuring out what the price of an option should be, that involves math. And at the time, Petterfee says, no one was really using math. So the prices for these things were all over the place. I mean, nobody really knew what, what they were doing. In, in other words, the numbers were, you know, fairly had nothing to do with, with the real value of options. Petterfee starts trying to figure out a way to calculate what these options should cost. He runs little simulations in a computer. If I sold someone this option at price X, how often does it end up being worth more than X? How often less than X? What is a fair price for it? It took me about nine months to 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 figure this out, but once I figured it out, <laughs> it was a fantastic feeling. And because it because it meant there was a way to price them. That's right. That's right. David, we should point out here, 
Pedophilia is not the only person at this time who's trying to do this. In fact, a couple economists went on to win a Nobel Prize for some related work they did on options pricing around the time. But but this idea, it was not yet widespread. And anyone who had worked out the math had a huge advantage. It's like, imagine that the markets are a whole bunch of people standing around trying to guess how much something weighs. And Pedophilia, he's got a scale. The formula tells him what a reasonable price for an option should be. So then he can look at the market and see, oh, that one's trading for $18. It should be worth more. It should be $20. And if he sees one that's cheap, he can buy it. If one's overpriced, he can sell it. And this is the beginning of how Pedophy makes his fortune. And I should say here, it is substantial. As of 2012, Forbes estimates his net worth is over $5.4 billion. But at this point in our story, it's 1977, Pedophy is not yet rich. He has his secret formula, but he's got a problem, and it's a big one. At this moment, trading isn't really done by computer. It happens in the physical world. There's a big trading pit here in New York, and you actually have to be standing there on the floor to buy or sell options. And the pit, it's a mob scene. You know, Pedophy can't bring his computer with the formula in it onto the trading floor with him. So he comes up with a plan. He has the computer do the math in advance, and he prints out all these tables on paper so he can look up what a price should be for a particular option selling at such and such a price. He puts the tables in a big three-ring binder, and he brings the binder down onto the trading floor with him. So you have to imagine the scene. There's this Hungarian guy with a strange accent, walks onto the trading floor with this big binder full of numbers. People looked at me, what what the heck is that? And so I said, well, you know, these are my numbers that will help me trade, hopefully. They made funny faces and they, you know, many of them didn't understand my accent. And it was, (laughs) I I didn't feel very welcome there, but they thought I was a a goon (laughs) of some sort. And after a few days, the folks in charge tell him, you can't have this big binder on the floor. It's too crowded there as it is. So I started to fold up my papers and put them in the various pockets. And uh, by the end of the day, I <laughs> looked like a madman with all these papers hanging out of all of my pockets. And I had to always wear a jacket so I had enough pockets to put my various papers. The pocket thing, it works okay. He makes some money, but it's slow going. And just think about really how how slow it is, how crude his setup is. He has to get all this data and, and enter it into the computer by hand. He has to type it in. Then the computer does its calculations, spits out these tables. Pedophy has to put the tables in his pockets. He's always got to be pulling out the tables on the trading floor. And then he, he's got to wave his hands around and actually buy and sell the stuff from other people on the floor. And really, there is no need for him to be involved at all, right? His dream is to have a computer handle everything. He can just sit back and watch the money pile up. But for that to happen, he needs to overcome two obstacles. First, he needs a way to to get the data, all the prices from the markets into the computer so it can do its calculations. These are still really early days for getting a live data stream, but there are these things called Quotron machines that you could buy. I actually remember seeing one of these in an office at a bank when I was a kid. It was a keyboard attached to one of those early boxy computer monitors where the text was all in green. It was basically the first replacement for the paper ticker that would clack, 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 right? Actually, tick, 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 tick. That's why it was called a ticker. <laughs> You'd type in the stock you were interested in to the Quotron machine, like DD for DuPont, and the machine would tell you what the current stock price was. It was amazing. Pedofi thought, this is great. 
1982, he buys one of these machines. He gets it wired up. Now he's got these live stock prices in green on the screen. But remember, he needs a way to get the stock prices into his computer so it can do all the fancy math. So he reads through the contract for his Quotron machine. He checks that there's no restrictions on what you can actually do with your Quotron machine. And then he cuts the cable that goes into the back of the Quotron machine, the cable that's carrying all the information about the stock prices. And he wires that cable directly into his computer. It takes a while. He has to hire some people to help. But eventually, it works. He'd hacked into the data stream. And now his computer could crunch the data instantly. Pettifree didn't have to enter all the prices by hand anymore. And this really is another key moment. I mean, we take for granted today that, sure, you can go to any computer, your computer, and look up the price of of any stock. But Pettifee, in order to do this, he had to hack into the Quotron system. He actually had to cut the cable and, like, bolt it into his computer. Yeah, today you would just, like, type in the stock. He had to get, like, an oscilloscope and a soldering iron, all this stuff. So now he can get the data in. But to act on it, to buy or sell options, that still has to happen manually. So he hires a bunch of traders, and he works out a clever system so they don't have to carry around pieces of paper. He and his engineers build what are kind of like proto-iPads, tablet computers that will tell the traders what to buy and sell. I saw one of these things in his office. It looks like something that might have flown on an early moon mission. It's this like metal box screwed together. It's got a, a touchscreen on top. It looks very experimental, and it was. There were problems, like they were driven by lithium batteries and one of the boxes exploded on the trading floor, you know, a big went up in big smoke and people said, this is dangerous. <laughs> so Pedrofi here is, is using computers to trade, sort of, but it's, it's definitely not yet computerized trading. He still has to have people with these exploding proto iPads who have to go wave their arms around and holler in the trading pit. And Pedrofi is still dreaming of the day when he can finally take these traders out of the loop. This finally happens in 1987 at NASDAQ. The NASDAQ stock exchange is the world's first electronic market, meaning there is no trading floor. You buy and sell by typing orders into a computer, a NASDAQ terminal. Pedrofi is psyched. He gets himself a NASDAQ terminal. His team does their hacking again, cuts the cable. And now finally, for the first time, it is all automated. His office looks like this. There's a NASDAQ terminal and next to it, a computer. Whole thing is silent and it is trading up a storm. It's making lots and lots of trades. So many trades that people start to notice. A high-up official with the NASDAQ exchange comes by Pedrofi's office to see. Pedrofi says the guy's expecting a room full of traders and terminals. Instead, there is just this one terminal attached to a computer. And uh, he looks and looks and looks, and he says, well, so tell me again how are you doing this? (laughs) So I explained to him what's happening here. And then he says, I, I don't think you can do this, but uh, I, I, I really don't think, but let me go back to my office and, and let you know. And uh, he calls back and he says, well, look, look in your Nasdaq rule book. It says that orders have to be input via the keyboard. And you're not doing that. You're just splicing in the wire. So this is not good. You're violating the rules. We're giving you a week to um, correct this rule violation. One week. One week. So this was a problem. (laughs) 
Betterfeed thinks and thinks. He talks it over with his engineers, and they come up with a solution. The rules just say the buy and sell orders have to be entered through the keyboard. So Petterfee's team builds a machine that does that. So it was basically they were rubber fingers that were typing. We built a robot to type in the trades. We built, we built a, a robot that types. Petterfee is very pleased. For him, this kind of highlights the absurdity of the situation. And a week later, the official at NASDAQ comes back. I triumphantly show him our creation. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell you, he, he, he opened his mouth and never closed it again. <laughs> what did that thing sound like when it was running? Uh, it was, it, that was the only problem was that it was very loud. So you could tell how much activity was, there was in the market because it was typing like crazy, like a machine gun. People started to wear... Uh, uh, earmuffs, not earmuffs, what do you call it? Earplugs. And in the next years, in the 1990s, computerized trading gets a lot easier. You didn't have to build a typing robot anymore. The exchanges started to allow Petterfee and others trying to do this just to plug their computers right into the market. And this brings us to where we are today. Now, according to an estimate by the Tab Group, half of all stock trades are done because an algorithm told the computer to buy or sell. Petterfee today is one of the big players. The company he started called Interactive Brokers, it does electronic trades on a mind-boggling scale. The company has two parts. One is a broker, basically, that lets people do trades quickly electronically. The other part does what's called market making. When somebody wants to sell a stock, say, their computers will buy it, then turn around and sell it when someone else wants it. You don't make a lot of money on every trade, but you do lots and lots of them. Petterfee says automation has done some very good things for the world. In the olden days, back when you needed people to do all your trades, those people charged you a lot of money to do that. For example, at Interactive Brokers, uh, the average commission we charge on a trade uh, is $4.05 and, and or something like that. So it's, 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 it's very, very cheap compared to, you know, 20 years ago, if you wanted to do a trade, it would cost you 50 or $60. So it's, it, 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 the, the, the savings are humongous. It's really huge. Commissions, what he's talking about there, are definitely lower. And this is, this is better for everybody. There's real social value to this. Like anyone who's ever bought and sold a stock, anyone with a retirement account, they get a better deal in a lot of ways. The financial markets now, they are like very well-oiled machines. Okay, yes, there are some benefits from this. But, you know, if the markets are now well-oiled machines, they seem like well-oiled machines that keep rushing off the road at high speed and crashing into trees. That is true. The most famous case was back in 2010, something that's come to be known as the flash crash, where the stock market momentarily went totally haywire. Five even offer comes in, four even are trading out now, three even are trading out now, three even video now, you're going to get a low print of 1103 even. This is Ben Lichtenstein. He runs a service called Traders Audio. 93 even are trading here now, guys. 91 even are trading. 89s are trading. 88 hounds are trading. 87 even are trading. This was a very crazy moment. Some stocks started trading for just a penny. Some went crazy high. And then somehow it all went back to normal. The Securities and Exchange Commission put together this 104-page report trying to reconstruct what happened. And not surprisingly, it was due to computerized trading. Pettifee remembers the day this happened. So where were you when the flash crash happened? 
I was right here. <laughs> I was sitting by my uh, machinery here, and I just couldn't believe what was going on. And I picked up the phone, and I said, what's happening? And <laughs> people said, we don't know. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was not a good thing. The next thing Pedafi said is a little surprising. I kind of expect guys like Pedafi to just say, look, faster is better, more automation is better. But he says we've reached a point of absurdity where everyone is trying to be faster and faster and faster to beat the next guy by a thousandth of a second. We are competing on milliseconds. And whether you can shave off three milliseconds in the execution of an order has absolutely no social volume. In fact, it may be making the whole system less stable. It's certainly making everything more expensive for everyone. Companies that trade, his included, have to keep spending more and more money just to be a tiny bit faster. Now you have to put your computers physically right next to the stock exchange. You have to think about sending signals with lasers instead of regular wires. Companies are also talking about laying new optical fibers underneath the Arctic Ocean in a particular direction just so people who pay for it can get trades to European or Japanese markets a teeny bit faster. It's basically not unlike the the arms race used to be against the Russians uh, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, right? It's the same question, right? Who builds the bigger bomb? Who builds more of them? How do you put a stop to that, though? Well, that's that's the question. That's, you know... It's it's an interesting situation. It's a it's a situation where I do not quite see how this will resolve itself. It's it's uh, to to the benefit. Of, I don't see how it will resolve itself to the benefit of the marketplace. Let's say a quandary. <laughs> Pedrofi is in favor of some more regulation, regulation that will build in some safeguards and, in the process, slow things down. The challenge will be, of course, that people will always try to find a way around the rules. There's always someone willing to build a robot that types. There are code breakers with lines well As always, let us know what you think. You can email us at planetmoney at npr.org or find us on the blog at npr.org slash money. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. We are indebted today to Christopher Steiner, the author of the book Automate This. In it, he describes Thomas Petterfee's story and more. We'll put a link to it on our blog. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Thanks for listening. Just deception and crawling